Good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Andre Gray, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. Uh, I have the distinct honor of leading our South congregation. And it's hard to believe that it's been six months to the day that my wife, Christine, and I have been here uh, in Austin serving here at this church. And it has been a rocky start <laughs> to a new season, to say uh, the very least. But we are so excited to be here. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. And I'm excited to have the honor to be bringing you God's word today. We are in week five of what is our six-week series entitled Mystery and Meaning, where we have been studying through what scholars refer to as Jesus's third discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. In our journey through the 13th chapter of this gospel narrative, we are invited once again into the classroom of the master teacher. In typical Jesus-like fashion, he begins walking his listeners through his doctoral level course on the kingdom of heaven by, by using simple stories known as parables to unpack eternal truths. I heard a pastor friend of mine make note of the poet Marianne Moore's description of poetry as, as imaginary gardens with real toads in them. In other words, they are fictional stories that convey real truth, which I find to be an appropriate description of parables. These short, simple, and impactful tales are by definition comparative in nature. As Pastor Ross uh, highlighted for us last week, they, they typically function uh, by, by making a, a seemingly complex or abstract ideas, taking those things and comparing them to the most basic ideas of everyday life in an attempt to help the reader or hearer understand. However, parables aren't simply metaphorical analogies comparing one thing to another but they are meant to be challenging. They, they are incendiary tales that have the propensity to pull us in and force us to grapple with weighty truths that often have substantial implications for how we respond to their invitations. And this morning's sermon will be no exception to that reality. As we prepare to carefully consider another one of Jesus' parables, it is important to note the, the deep self-examination that will be required of us today. I don't expect that there will be a whole lot of say it agains or hallelujahs or amens or shouts of preach on preacher coming from your living room or wherever you might be watching from in this moment. Although if we're being honest, our church isn't really known for doing things like that, that kind of stuff anyhow. But, but I suspect we especially won't be doing it today. You see, this parable, often described as the parable of the net, will be at the very least asking some eternally important and extremely provoking questions of us today. Questions about our connection to God and to his people about the difference between the church and what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. 
and what we ought to expect from what is pictured as the eschatological judgment that we will all face at the end of the age. So it is with that in mind that I desire to let you know that my sermon today isn't shaped around three subsequent points or any sort of alliteration. My hope is to highlight and unpack what seems uh, to be the big idea of our passage today. The central theme that seems to be leaping from the pages of our text, I offer it for your consideration in the form of a question. When the day of judgment comes, will we be found as simply being in the house or of the house? I'll ask it again. When the day of judgment comes, will we be found as simply being in the house or of the house? Asked another way, will you be found as simply being a local church member and at best affiliated with the kingdom of heaven or an authentic citizen of the kingdom of heaven? You see, our answer to this question carries with it significant and eternal consequence and therefore demands our attention as we are invited to wrestle with the words of King Jesus. I'm willing to bet that if any of us were asked, give an account of our experience with the church, we would likely have two answers to give. On the one hand, we would probably give description of beautiful moments of meaningful encounters with the Lord, countless moments of thoughtful encouragement from the people of God and an enriching sense of love from both God and his people in their kindness towards us. And in the same breath, we would probably be able to give an account of the moments when we have experienced the very opposite of those things within the church. It would not be shocking to discover that for many of us in the local church, we have experienced things like hypocrisy, hatred, compromise, and spiritual apathy within the local church. One of these experiences draws us toward deep love for the church and the other deep resentment. But the question one must ask is how could we be having such totally opposite experiences in the church of all places? How do we make sense of both the beauty of the church and the brokenness of it? Well, we have to start by recalling the reality that the church and the kingdom of heaven are not the same thing. In a commentary on this passage, D.A. Carson uh, uh, reminds us that we have to be careful not to equate the church with the kingdom. Throughout these parables, Jesus has been teaching us about this difference repeatedly as he continuously describes what the kingdom of heaven is like. Time and time again, Jesus began his parables by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like blank. He continuously tells these stories in an effort to paint the picture that the kingdom of heaven is the full expression of the authority and the character of God. 
It is the rule, reign, and display of God in his people and through his people in the world. And it is in that sense that what is the invisible kingdom of heaven becomes visible as the citizens of that kingdom bear witness where they are. So, the church is not the kingdom of heaven itself, but it is an outpost, an an embassy of sorts that is meant to represent the kingdom in this world. So when the church is functioning rightly, we get to experience the reality of enriching love and uplifting goodness because the kingdom of heaven is being fully expressed by the way, by, by way of the authority and character of Jesus uh, being holistically exalted and surrendered to by his people. However, in contrast, when the church is functioning abhorrently, we unfortunately experience the reality of hypocrisy and spiritual apathy because the authority and character of Jesus is being resisted and sometimes outright rebelled against by his people. You see, many of us likely have the world characterized into two sets of people, Christians and non-Christians. But this is a common misconception that we make, especially within the American church. But this parable about a fishing excursion excursion confronts that idea and shows us that we ought not assume that everybody who's in the church, hear me, is necessarily in the kingdom of heaven. Or put it another way, not everybody who's in the house is necessarily of the house. So while you might find yourself as someone who would identify as a Christian in this moment, it doesn't necessarily mean that you belong to the kingdom. And to not belong to the kingdom, in the end, carries with it an eternal, irreversible, and catastrophic consequence. Look with me at Matthew 13. I want to read for us our passage that we're focused in on today. Matthew 13, 47 through 52. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them away into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, his disciples, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So this this, this parable, Jesus starts off this parable by highlighting a key reality of the kingdom. 
Scholars refer to it as the, the already but not yet motif. It's this idea that the kingdom of heaven has been, currently is, and someday will be. The chief focus of, the, of this parable is neither the consummated kingdom nor the inaugurated kingdom, but the full breath of the kingdom as it is in the present in light of what it will be in the end. In other words, this kingdom net has already been thrown into the sea and has been gathering all kinds of fish ever since. And the final separation or the final judgment that is described in verse 49 has not yet happened. And so we are still in the middle of this kingdom fishing excursion of sorts until the end where Jesus says there will be some who are found caught in the middle of the net but ultimately will be separated out. Now some of you might be saying, hold up, Pastor Dre. Are you trying to tell me that this somehow means that I can lose my salvation? Can I trust in Jesus and then find myself rejected at the final judgment somehow? Well, no. This is not Jesus' point here. Jesus is reminding his audience of a basic but sobering reality. Something most of us are fully familiar with and aware of. Jesus' point is that a professed faith is not the same as a possessed faith. You see, it is quite possible for one to have membership in the church of God, hear me, while altogether lacking it in the kingdom of God. And this reality is not foreign to the scriptures, but in fact is a prevalent message within them. There are a number of instances where the scriptures teach us about this truth. Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 7, he's giving his, his famous sermon on the mount. And he says in chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, church family, Jesus is not interested in simply being associated with, but rather being known, treasured, and submitted to. Being in the kingdom of heaven is not simply about doing things in the name of Jesus, but belonging to the person of Jesus and living in accordance with who he is for the fame and glory of who he is. And many of us have lived our lives doing things for the person of Jesus. Hear me. This is a word for us this morning, church family. Many of us have lived our lives doing things for the person of Jesus, yet lacking authentic connection to the person of Jesus. My friends, that is indeed a sad reality, but Jesus, hear me, wants nothing more than to invite you and I out of the shadows 
of performative faith and into the bright light of authentic faith today. Arguably one of the most famous character examples of this in the Bible is one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot. Someone we are all familiar with. A man who was found among Jesus' closest circle of friends while he was here on earth yet having no real relationship with him. Judas was a disciple by association but not a disciple by transformation. And while some of us would like to disassociate ourselves with this particular character of the Bible, many of us, many of us should rightly see ourselves reflected in the mirror of Judas's life. You see, Judas, like many of us, if we were being honest, honestly applying this reality to ourselves. Judas is like many of us, and we need to do some careful self-examination to our lives because Judas found himself in the house, but not of the house. I want you to imagine with me waking up one day in the middle of a beautiful mansion, The windows are large, the rooms are endless, the bathrooms are enormous, and the amenities would make resorts look like elementary playgrounds. You walk into a kitchen filled with with, with some of the tastiest foods you have ever eaten and some of the finest drink you have ever partaken of. But you quickly find out that you are not there alone. There are others present who are also enjoying this delightful estate as you all eat and drink and play to your heart's content. There is no question that you are all experiencing probably what is the greatest time of your lives and have no intention of leaving anytime soon. However, later that day into the evening, someone finally grabs the attention of everyone who is present and announces that it's time for anyone who is not of the house to vacate the premises. Now, now you have nowhere to go. And and, and to your surprise, quickly realize that, 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 that you are among those who have to leave. Because while you were in this house all alone, and enjoying it as though you belonged to stay, it became apparent that you weren't a member of that household family, thus requiring you to leave. And friends, this parable is inviting us into that kind of a picture as Jesus describes what will be the final judgment that we will all have to face and potentially find ourselves in the house, namely the church, but not of the house, namely the kingdom of heaven. And the invitation from Jesus to you and I today is to take a careful examination of our hearts and lives in order to make sense of our status with him today. You see, it would be foolish to assume that you are among what Jesus calls the good fish, and ignore the necessity to take stock of your life to affirm that you truly are. 
the Apostle Paul in his, second, in his second epistle to the church in Corinth urges his readers to examine themselves to verify whether or not they were truly in the faith. In some sense, Paul was inviting them to examine whether they were simply in the house or of it, whether they were simply in the church as members or in the faith as citizens of the kingdom. And make no mistake about it, friends, there is a difference. You see, Christianity is in fact a heart-focused religion that is internal before it is external, although it is undoubtedly both. Unless the outward-facing reality of things like church membership, profession of faith, pursuit of justice, generous giving, and joyful service, to name a few, matches up with the internal reality of surrender to the person and work of King Jesus, then it is ultimately a facade. The true disciple, as Jesus points out in verses 51 through 52 of our passage, is one who has a holistic understanding of the kingdom of heaven has made the great exchange of their life for the treasure that this kingdom is and is relentlessly committed to the ways of the kingdom, among which is love, righteousness, and justice. This parable is God's grace to you and I today, church family. So let us not be afraid to ask the Spirit to take a scalpel to our hearts. You see, he desires nothing more than for us to come to Jesus, to know Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, and to find full freedom in Jesus. He is the only one who deserves entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So a passage like this should cause us to, to, to put all of our faith and our trust and our hope and our confidence in him. It reminds us that religious affiliation is not what God is after. Being a good moral human being is not what God is after. Being a faithful church member is not what God is after. What matters to God is our surrender in total trust and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or said differently, the kingdom of heaven has a king and his name is Jesus and the essential and eternal question before each of us today is have you truly bowed the knee to that king, given to him the throne of your life, submitted to him fully, and made the great exchange of your life for the treasure of the kingdom? Because the challenge that this parable puts before us today is that. Have you truly surrendered to King Jesus? Are you truly submitted to the rule and reign of this king and a loyal subject to the ways and the reality of his kingdom? It is a challenge that we should not take lightly, my friends. But the parable also challenges us in a second way. If we zoom in on verse 49, where Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. If we zoom in on that, 
Notice that Jesus didn't say they'll separate those who believe in justification by faith from those who believe in justification by works. It says the angels are going to separate the evil from the righteous. These are ethical terms that that focus on obedience, on, on virtue, on how we actually live. But if we're being honest, we struggle with this as Protestants, don't we? We can tend to get real uneasy when the Bible starts talking this way because it starts to sound really works-based. And we're not quite sure what to do with that oftentimes. However, I assure you that we can still trust the teachings of Scripture And have no need to be bothered by passages like this because the Bible is clear that when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, we will be judged according to our deeds. The Bible says this repeatedly, so it is impossible to miss it. 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a tomb without blemish or spot, or of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see the connection? We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that God is going to judge us impartially according to our deeds. You see, those two things are not opposed, but they hold together. Our belonging to the kingdom by way of salvation is not based on what we do, but is evidenced by what we do. Hear me, church family. And what we do is less about proof of our salvation and much more about the fruit of our salvation. You catch that? So how we live our lives matters deeply in the kingdom of heaven. We're not called to simply affirm tenets of the faith like justice, but to actually do justice. We're not called to just affirm tenets of the faith like love, but to actually display love to both friend and enemy. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The, The Bible is clear that you and I will give an account for what we do with our lives in the end. And this is why the gospel is such good news for us today. You see, God, through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, has forgiven those who have trusted in Jesus of all their evil deeds, credited to us the righteousness of Jesus so that his good deeds are counted as ours so that our record of evil gets erased and Jesus' record of good gets credited to us instead. But it doesn't stop there. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can actually live out in the godly virtue that we are called to uphold. Don't miss that part of the gospel. In other words, the gospel... It is not transactional in nature, but it is transformational 
in nature. By the power of his spirit, we can now live differently. And to leave that out is to leave out the gospel of the scriptures. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is quoted as saying the gospel is not about the justification is about, excuse me, the gospel is about the justification of sinners, but it is not the justification of sin. This is a profound distinction. See, while we were sinners, we were justified by grace, and that grace changes us into the kind of people who are to use the language of the book of Titus, zealous for good works and committed in obedience to following Jesus with everything that we have. One of the ways you know that you're a part of the kingdom of heaven is that righteousness is growing in your life. The president of the end campaign, Justin Gibney, is quoted as saying, many of us are far too comfortable with being Christian-ish. We embrace the language, the symbols, and the trapping of the faith, but flee when the substance and tenets of the faith threaten our comforts and ambitions. So while the first half of discipleship means to go down on our knees and confess our poverty in both spirit and righteousness, the second half of discipleship, which is sometimes neglected among God's people, is to get up on our feet and seek to keep Jesus' commands. You see, we tend to do well with the first half of discipleship, but often neglect that second half. We have to surrender to Jesus as our Lord and Savior and live a life that reflects that surrender that, ha- that, that, that surrender has actually happened. Friends, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is news about a king who has come to liberate his people from bondage to sin, and the evidence of that liberation is a life of repentance and faith and loyalty to that king and his ways. Jesus is the great fisherman, dragging the net of his church through the world, gathering fish of every kind, and just because you are in the net, or to put it another way, in the church, doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ loves us enough to tell us that in this parable and invite us to examine ourselves before him today so that we can be truly found as citizens of the kingdom. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that This is one of those messages that's going to provoke some deep or should provoke some deep self-reflection. Many of you watching right now may may not have come to Christ out of a life of blatant wickedness, but out of a life of good, religious, Bible belt morality. And listen, that's as much of a story of the grace of the gospel as is the prodigal who runs into the far country and comes home to the father. So I want to invite you to reflect on these things yourself this morning. Perhaps you've been around the church for years. Perhaps it's even embarrassing or shameful to step back this morning 
and, 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 and go, wait, hold on, have I, have I only been in the church but never actually wrestled with the question of whether the kingdom has come in my life? And the temptation, whenever that question is put before us, is to feel foolish and wonder, how could I have miss, missed this? How could I have overseen this, overlooked this? But friends, I don't want you to linger in that place for one minute today, but I want you to see the grace of God for you today and his love to invite you in again to talk about the difference between being in the church and being in the kingdom. He loves you enough to draw you in, to help you to see clearly the difference. So here's what's true if you've been in the church your whole life and this is the first time you've understood the difference between external religion and internal transformation. There is no reason to be ashamed or embarrassed or half-hearted or discouraged or wonder why it took you so long to get it. Today is the day of salvation, friends. Today is the day of salvation for you. God's invitation to you and I is to come joyfully and humbly into the kingdom to surrender and submit to the king. See, this is great news for you. And this is also great news for those of us who find ourselves in the kingdom as well. Who want to know, what is the mission of the king? What mission has Jesus sent us on? Well, the answer is found in the authority and character of that king. He has sent us on a mission to proclaim his gospel for the liberation of souls in bondage, to do justice for the liberation of marginalized people, and to live righteously in the world by being a people of love. So friends, let's come to him as we close out today. Let's come to him in fresh faith and fresh hope and fresh courage and in fresh surrender this morning as his hand of grace is ever stretched towards us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children this morning, Lord, recognizing that, Father, we need you more than ever. We need your love. We need your grace in our lives. Father, we need your spirit. Father, we need you to help us to see rightly this morning. We need you, Father, to illuminate for us what it means to be children of the kingdom and not simply children of the church house. Father, we need you to help us to be proper, full representations of your authority and your character in this world.
Father, we need you to help us to be a people of righteousness, to be a people of love, to be a people of forgiveness, to be a people of patience, to be a people of justice. Father, would you give us your heart this morning? Father, would you help those of us that have been living in a faith of transaction to start living in a faith of transformation? That can only be done by the power of your spirit. So we trust you for that this morning. Help us not to walk in shame, but to walk in the full boldness that, the, that, that your resurrection gives us. To come before you, Father, and to humbly ask you to help us to be your people, kingdom people, not just church people. Help us to be righteous people and not evil people. Help us to live out the transformation that you have given us. We love you, Father. We trust you for that this morning. It is only through you, King Jesus, that we can hold on to that hope. And so we cling to you as our only hope this morning. It is in your good and mighty and matchless and glorious and powerful and majestic name that we pray. Amen.